Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the eating and drinking practice. There are two basic steps, thinking and living, or put another way, first, set your mind on joy. As we all know, you can't will joy. Joy is more than an emotion, but not less, and you can't will an emotion. There's no light switch on off. There's no like, turn off the sad switch, turn on the happy switch, right? It doesn't exist. Turn off the stressed out switch, turn on the chill. Like, it doesn't exist. There's no, if you have a light switch, please, Give me the podcast, right? But we don't have control over our emotions. Because of that, many people at the live at the mercy of their emotions, live a kind of victim life at their emotions, live the kind of casualty of their biochemical reactions. But we do have control over our mind, our thought life, what we set our attention on, what we give our mental real estate to. And as a general rule, your feelings follow your thinking. This is pretty basic stuff. If you right now think about how horrible your boss is and the injustice of corporate America or whatever and this slight or this thing he or she said, what do you start to feel? Anger. If you start to think about the dystopian future where Google's AI takes over the world, right, against Elon Musk's wishes, or you think about North Korea, if you start, what do you feel? Anxiety, right? If you, in the same way, if you think about God and how good he is, how at the center of the universe is a being that just is the source of pure love and joy and peace. And then you start to think about all that is good and beautiful and true in this universe that you call home. What do you start to feel? Joy. Because your thinking follows your think, your, I'm sorry, your feeling follows your thinking. So you can't will joy, but you can will a thought life that is curated in such a way that joy is the inevitable byproduct. Now we see this more than anywhere else in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Feel free to turn there if you want to Philippians chapter four. If not, it's up on the wall behind me. So Paul, well-known line, Philippians chapter four, verse four, near the end of the letter, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always or celebrate in the Lord always. And then he has, I will say it again because you all need to hear it. Rejoice, celebrate, right? So there's the command to joy, right? To cultivate this in the overall condition of your heart. But then next he has a few exercises for how you and I grow and mature into joyful people. Take a look at six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, read this out loud with me, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
but that can be translated meditate on such things or fill your mind with those kinds of things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Peace in the New Testament with the, it doesn't translate well from Greek to English. It's way more than the idea of how we think of peace as non-anxiety. It's, it's more that and joy. It's the sense of a pervasive sense of well-being. Do this and the God of a pervasive sense of well-being will be with you. Now, notice there are three-ish steps right in here for how you, or exercises, for how you and I are to set our mind on joy. If you're taking notes really fast, the first is to surrender the illusion of control over to God, right? And six again, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't fret, don't stress out about anything major, minor, but in every situation, doesn't matter what it is, by prayer and by, by petition. Just present it all over to God. Give it all over to God. If you want to become a joyful person, you have to come to the place where you release and you let go of and you surrender the illusion of control. And you just release outcomes to God. And what happens, happens. It's not this weird like name it, claim it kind of thing where you just believe that nothing bad will happen to you. That's just a recipe for disillusionment and disenchantment. It's far deeper than that. It's where you say, no matter what happens to me, if what I fear happens or doesn't happen, either way, I'm okay because I have life with God. And that doesn't mean that you don't grieve or lament or process. Doesn't mean that at all. It just means the great end, and for most of us, this is decades in the future in our maturity, but the great end is where you come to, long before this was a catchphrase in the Buddhist literature or the mindfulness literature, ancient followers of Jesus, St. John of the Cross, Teresa, Vivalia, were all using this word and this idea of detachment. You have to just detach where your happiness and your just emotional life in general and spiritual life is not based on your circumstances. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about what happens or doesn't happen, it just means that you have life with God and you release out, you do the right thing, you pray, you give your anxiety, and then you just release, you can't control life, you can't control the world, you can't control other people, don't try to, the end result of that is just manipulation and anger. So you just release control. You do your part, you pray, and you surrender. Secondly, give thanks. That's the next line, right? In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, give all of this over to God. You just work gratitude into every fiber of your being. You thank God for anything, everything, massive, she said yes, or whatever the thing is, or just Trust me, that Colombian coffee this morning, I feel like I'm still practicing gratitude for that. Just, I can't wait to wake up in the morning, right? Just whatever it is, you just work gratitude into your mind's new normal. And then third, and listen carefully, focus your attention on all that is good in the world. If you're anything like me, or the other seven plus billion people on the planet, your mind gravitates toward the negative, not the positive. The bad, not the good, all that's wrong in your life and in our world, not all that's right. There's all sorts of science behind this um, that basically says what biblical theology has been saying for a very long time, that we're messed up. And we're messed up in our mind above every other aspect of our person. 
And one of the areas that were messed up, call it sin, call it neurobiology, call it the fall, call it whatever you want, is that we have this penchant where 10 things happen to you in a day, nine of them are fabulous, one of them's bad, what do you think about? The one bad thing. 10 words are spoken to you, nine of them are a blessing, one of them's a bit snarky, what do you think about that night? The one, there's just something about us, right? Our brain is all skewed. And because of that, often we fill our mind with the exact opposite of this list here, right? Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely. N.T. Wright in his commentary in Philippians chapter four writes this. The command in verse eight to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media. So it's not just your brain and your sinfulness and your neurobiology that's against you. It's capitalism itself, right? Read the newspapers. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the place in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and, there's our word, what? Celebrate. I love that. The point is that we have to discipline our minds to focus on the good in our life and our world. A lot of this, honestly, just has to do with how you start your day. I can't, I don't wanna sound legalistic here at all, don't misread me, but I cannot think of a worse way to start your day than sleep with your phone next to your bed, set an alarm clock on it, wake up to an alarm, that's just a bad start right there, (laughs) and then roll over and check your phone. Text messages, email, oh, the boss is already up, social media, oh, she said, oh, he said, and then the news feed. Right, what did he do today? The the running question, every day, what did he do, right? I can't think of a better recipe for misery. One of the most important spiritual disciplines in all of my life with Jesus has to do with my phone. Um, My wife and I both do this. We turn our phones off at 8.30 at night. They go into, literally into a black box and a cupboard and we close it and it's there, we bought like old school analog alarm clock forever, it was fantastic. It's like, nice little thing, I'm like, ah, I love you. Next to my bed, no phone in the bedroom, and um, I don't turn it back on until 8.30 the next morning after I've been up, and I have spent time not only with Colombian coffee, which is very important, but it's another spiritual discipline, but, um, but in prayer and in the scriptures. Then and only then, Am I ready for all of that barrage of information? I say that in particular to you digital natives. I mean, just hear me. Don't let your phone set your emotional equilibrium and your newsfeed set your view of the world. Like, do not live at the mercy of your updates on your stupid phone. It does not work for you. It works for somebody in Silicon Valley. It's designed to addict you and distract you to steal you from the joy that God has for you in each and every moment. But I can FaceTime my mom. Okay, then FaceTime your mom and then put it away. And FaceTime life. Ooh, that was nice. That was on the fly. (laughs) 
FaceTime Live, hashtag. I think I just started a new one, right? And your newsfeed in particular, without, I might get an email on this one, but remember that freedom of the press is a myth. Yes, um, by the grace of God, we have freedom from, the press has freedom from the control of Washington, D.C., for the most part. Okay, that's great. But that is a bit of a myth. It's a smoke and mirrors. It is still in bondage to the bottom line. This is capitalism, people. This is not like for the greater good. I'm not, that's not a slam on journalists. That's what I wanted to be when I was younger. My point is, this is about money. It's about the bottom line. And the reality is due to neurobiology, due to, if you want to call it original sin, whatever, bad news sells at 10 times the rate of good news. And if you, the only way to top bad news is to like add something clickbaity about a celebrity to it, right? So if you just want to drive up your page views on newsfeed of choice and thereby drive up advertising and make more money, all you need to do is a little article with like a picture of Ben Affleck's back tattoo or something. Done. You just made money hand over fist. My point is the press is not free. Your morning newsfeed is not an accurate picture of the world. Can you imagine what you would think of the world if all you had was just your experience in our city and no connection to any of that? Your morning news feed is curated not only with a socio-political agenda in mind that is thoroughly secular, and if your feed is anything like mine, I pay some money to get a decent one, but still, it is very progressive, over-the-top progressive, with massive assumptions about reality that I believe are not true. Not only that, but it's curated with an eye to all that is evil in the world and very little of what is good because basically that's where the money is. Now don't misread me, I am not saying turn a blind eye to injustice or just enjoy your middle class or up lifestyle in a great safe coastal city. That's not what I'm, don't mishear me, hopefully you know me better than that. I'm, all I'm saying is don't let your phone set your emotional equilibrium and your newsfeed set your view of the world. That is a surefire recipe for anything and everything other than joy. Mark Sayers and our friends at Red Church in Melbourne have this little saying, win the day. What they mean by that is they have a tradition in the church where if you're part of that church, in the morning, first thing, you put your phone at the other end of your apartment or dorm or house or whatever, and you win the day. You start the day in the scriptures and in prayer. And you let prayer set your emotional equilibrium and you let the library of scripture set your view of what the world is, what it isn't, and what it means to be human in it. Now, whether you adopt that practice or not, and I highly recommend you do, I do it, I love it. Whether you win the day, or you win the night, or you win your lunch break, whatever it is that you win, my point is don't let the enemy sabotage the movement in your heart toward joy. God has so much more for you. Now, rant over. To recap, how do you set your mind on joy? Very simple. You surrender the illusion of control, you give thanks, and you focus your attention on all that is good. This is how you set your mind on joy. It's how you curate your thought life to align with that of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you do this over time, there's no switch, but over time you will become a joyful person. Secondly, 
You move your body into joy. So your body is the locus point of your spirituality or your relationship to the Spirit of God. You don't have a body, you are one. Your mind and your body are all a part of who you are. And Jesus is in the process of healing all of you, mind and body. Notice what Paul said at the end of that little exercise. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, in my body, in my morning routine, in my weekday life, put it into practice and the God of a pervasive sense of well-being will be with you. Meaning follow Jesus the way that I follow Jesus. Adopt my practices that are based on Jesus' practices and if you do that, then you will become joyful. For starters, that means most of us need to slow our body down. Hurry is incompatible with the love and the joy and the peace that God has for you. Just slow the heck down. Then we have to take care of our body, sleep and eat healthy and exercise and create margin. Then we have to adopt the practices of Jesus with our body, most of which are things we do with our body. Eat a meal with your community and then get time in the quiet, alone with God. Work, give your life to something that matters and then take a day for Sabbath to rest and worship and celebrate, and then put your body in situations where again, joy is the inevitable byproduct. Go to a party, right? Um, Host a feast, practice Sabbath, go to the beach for a day, or Savi Island, not that part of Savi Island, the Christian part of Savi (laughs) Island, right? And again, you're like, my pastor said, no, he did not, all right? And again, if you do this, you will become a joyful person. It's that simple, this is not rocket science. You're like, you're basically saying, yes, that's it. To summarize, foster again for the win. God has established a created order full of excellent and good things and it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. That is God's appointed way to joy. If we think we will have joy only by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things, I love, you don't have to be rich for this, just simple good things, and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is full of joy. Now, how does that sound for the week ahead? There are all sorts of ways to practice celebration, right? Here's a short list. Music, 10 of the best dollars I spend every month is Apple Music, right? Singing, dancing, don't tell anybody, laughter, like, ah, oh, what, what comedy does to our heart, storytelling, why is it that at a, at a wedding or at a birthday party, or at a, we just have to stand up and tell a story around a campfire, we just have to tell a story to celebrate our life in God's world, special events, a birthday, an anniversary, holidays, May the 4th, that's the main one each year, um, then Christmas apparently is a thing too, 4th of July, Sabbath, an entire day, every single week set aside for celebration. I think Tim Keller was the one who said, because the world is so full of ugly things, on Sabbath is imperative that we feed the heart with beauty. Man, that you just take a whole day and you just feed the heart with beauty. Gratitude, most mornings I wake up and the first thing I do is just 
write out a few things on a scrap of paper that I'm grateful for, what that does to rewire my, the neurobiology of my brain, right? The pathways that I travel down in my spare time. Just hang out with joyful people. Like, do you know some joyful people? If not, go out and meet some. Now, all that to say, still, listen, really, I can't think of a better, better than anything on that list, I cannot think of a better way to practice the spiritual discipline of celebration than by eating and drinking and ideally with your family and God. Right, that was Jesus' go-to practice. We don't read a lot about him singing or nothing about him dancing, but we read a ton about him around a table. Bottle open, little pita and hummus left there, some hot grilled fish. He was actually quite a chef, we read at a moment. We read all of the time, which makes sense. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He grew up, he was steeped in the Torah. Did you know, this is like Bible nerd fact that has, just for fun. The Torah commanded the Israelites three times a year to throw a seven-day feast, celebration, in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate life in the kingdom of God, right? Here's a command, take a look at this. This is a command from Deuteronomy, all right? Command from the Torah. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. So it's an agrarian society, so just say 10% of your income. Eat, now what do you do with it? You give it all away, you give it to the poor? Nope, not this one, that's another tithe. Listen, you eat it. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now if that place is just too far away and you're filthy rich and you can't carry it all, then exchange your tithe for silver. I love this. Take the silver with you. Go to the place the Lord your God will choose, which later turns out to be Jerusalem. Use that money to buy whatever you want. Cattle, great, you're a meat, carne asada, okay, sheep, lamb, can't go wrong with that. Wine or other fermented drink, it's literally in the Hebrew strong drink, right? All of you are just gonna abuse that, but whatever, it's there, whiskey's in the Bible. Or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat it there, eat your tithe, in the presence of the Lord your God, and what? Rejoice, celebrate, there's our word. Just think about this for a minute. Okay, so what if we were to all pool 10% of our annual income into one giant party just for us, right? So Bridgetown, just think about that for a minute. So I think Bridgetown's budget, thank you to your generosity, is I think $1.6 million this year. I think we're in the black and you guys are amazing. Now, that said, there are about 1,500-ish people here on a Sunday, more than that, that are kind of a part of our church. Well, the median income in our city is 70 grand a person, right? So just hypothetical scenario, multiply 1,500 by 70, I think it's 105 million. Take a tithe of that, meaning if we were all actually giving 10% of our income to Bridgetown as an expression of the kingdom, if we were all doing that, um, our budget would be over $10 million just for that. Now imagine if we had a separate tithe on top of that one, and we took $10 million and we just threw a heck of a party. <laughs> just for us, no invite to anybody else, just us. Right, we have Tusk cater the whole thing, and we fly Chance the Rapper in to perform, and kombuchas on tap, and we have like massage in the back, and face painting, and like a ropes course, I don't know. Clearly I'm not in charge of the party. Like, whatever, and we just blow it all on one massive feast to celebrate our life in the presence of God in our city. 
Now, <laughs> um, if any of you were to suggest that, if, unless if this was in my mind, I most likely would rebuke you. <laughs> Do you not care about the poor, right? Which, by the way, is what Judas said in a very similar scenario. My point is that this is commanded in the Torah. What kind of God commands you, on top of your regular giving, to tithe 10% of your income to a party that you eat, that you enjoy? Like what, a God who is the most joyful being in all of the universe. And the point is really, in God's mind, the best way to celebrate is to throw a party and eat some really good food and drink some wine. There's all sorts of science now behind this. Yesterday I read um, The Hacking of the American Mind by Dr. Robert somebody or other. And brilliant book, if you've read that, his basic thesis is that in America we have conflated and confused pleasure with happiness, and it's not the same thing. Pleasure is about dopamine. Happiness at a biological level is about serotonin. Pleasure you get from um, a substance or an experience. Happiness you get from character and contentment. Pleasure in the moment you think to yourself, this feels good, I want more. Happiness you think, this feels good, I have enough. Too much pleasure, pleasure, the end result is addiction and death and chaos. Too much happiness, there is no such thing as too much happiness. Like there's no, there's no such thing, right? And so he says this whole thing about how government and industry have all conspired to hack your mind and addict you to your phone and a bunch of and sugar and a bunch of other stuff. And it's quite dour, it's a very depressing read. But then you get to the end and he has his little solution for how to survive America. So this basically comes down to you need religion, you need a community that you do life with, you need to take care of your body, and the best way to do all three at once is get your friends and family together and cook a, cook a meal and eat it together. I think Jesus said something about that a very long time ago. So our practice for the week ahead is all up online. It's very simple. You ready, all of you in a community or not? This is it. You get together with your community and throw a party. Just eat a meal. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to like fly chance in. It's okay. I'm doing that. You don't have to, all right? You just, what, whatever you have, you just party you just throw get the barbecue out you got a kids around get the kiddie pool Andy like whatever take them on a ride on the motorcycle whatever your thing is just thank God sing some worship songs practice gratitude tell stories after all celebration is a form of worship and gratitude and praise to God please do not misread me what I'm not saying here is like you know debauchery is okay or like mild drunkenness I, I get it's a whole other teaching that alcohol abuse is rampant in our city if you don't believe that just walk through your neighborhood on garbage day right and just look in the yellow bin the level of alcoholism is insane I have to remember that I grew up in a teetotaler family never had a drink of alcohol until I was in my 30s never been drunk in my life never had to call an uber I have a one drink rule whenever I'm out it's pretty hard to get drunk on one drink and um, so I just have this fantastic relationship with wine it just is like part of my worship I love it it's so good but I forget man this is a thing and I'm do not misread me here he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard I don't actually think he was a glutton or a drunkard right I'm not saying any of that there is a world of difference between a party in the world and a party in the kingdom of God at a party in the world for example you go to escape the pain of life in the kingdom you go to celebrate it in the world, you go to abuse food and alcohol. In the kingdom, you go to enjoy it as an act of gratitude, worship, humanity. In the world, you go to sin. In the kingdom of God, you go to become more holy. 
In the world, you only invite the cool people, the in crowd, and the kingdom. You invite anybody, everybody is welcome at the table. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. At a party in the world, you go to hide from God. You have to seal, you know, if you've ever been to that moment, you have to seal your mind off from the reality of God because you know you should not be there, you should not say that, you should not do that. Party in the kingdom, you go to press deeper into the presence of God. After a party in the world, you leave with a hangover and who knows what else. After a party in the kingdom of God, you leave with joy. Joy. So that's, that's like your practice for the week ahead. Does that sound fun? Like, just throw a party, eat, drink if that's your thing. Don't drink if it's not your thing. Just celebrate, right? Now to end, last thought. None of this comes naturally to me. And for a number of you in the room, you know the same is true for you. All sorts of research, and there's some debate over it, but basically right now is saying, as far as scientists tell, that 50% of your emotional disposition is genetic. Some of you just won the genetic lottery, and it's not fair. Some of you just wake up, and you're for the most part pretty happy. Like, it's just kind of how you are. My wife is like that, just pretty sanguine, pretty happy. Some of us are not like that. It's just, for some of us, it's not easy. Most of you, it's open secret, know that I've had a lifelong, ever since I was 18 or 19, struggle with anxiety and depression. That when I was 19, hit a really dark spot, was suicidal, was on medication. You learn really fast with antidepressants that numb and not miserable is a far cry from joy. And I know what the deep pit is like. I've spent years there. And um, man, 20-ish years later, I feel in one sense like a new man. I look back and I just, I think whenever I read the Psalms like about how God rescued me, that's what I think. I think I, I should be dead. I should not even be alive much less semi-healthy. And um, man, I'm just so grateful to God, but at the same time, I still have a long ways to go in my joy. This is just not easy for me. And I can't even imagine who I would be without Jesus. I just, I cannot imagine what my life would be like if Jesus was not my template, my true north. And um, my wife always says, you'd be really rich and really miserable. I'm like, is that a compliment or no? I don't think it's either. And I, I am so grateful, but still, I just have a long ways to go. A few weeks ago, I was with my wife on vacation, and I just had a few, it was a great vacation, but I had a few rough days emotionally, and I just said to her at one point, man, I just feel like I've been at this joy thing for two decades now. Will I ever arrive? I, like, I see this vision of myself in the future as a joyful man, and I just want to arrive there now. And I said to her, do you think I'll ever get there? And she said, it was great. She said, oh yeah, I absolutely, I see this vision of you as like old and joyful and at peace. <laughs> and I said, okay. She said handsome too, by the way. I'm just, I left that one out, but I'm so humble. Um, <laughs> and I said, oh, you do, you see me. And, and, I, and I said, when, when do you think I'll get there? You know what she said? She was not joking. She said, I think by 60. And I thought, I'm 38. That is, not, that is not helpful right now. That is not helpful. God, but the reality is that Jesus is less interested in here's a joy bomb to get you through your day. He's more interested 
and the transformation of the overall condition of my heart, regardless of my Myers-Briggs type, regardless of whatever Accutane did to me, my biochemistry when I was 17. Seriously, whatever, there's science behind that, it's a whole other thing. But um, whatever my genetic disposition is, the transformation of my inner person to become a man who is joyful through apprenticeship to the most joyful being to ever live. Like, that is my future. And even if it's three steps and forward and two steps back, even if it's a bit of a long journey, it is worth every step. And you are invited, wherever you're at on the Myers-Briggs spectrum, whatever your genetics are, whatever your story is, whatever your life is like right now, for some of you right now, joy is in the language of Karl Barth, a defiant nevertheless. It is a tenacious act of the will as an act of worship of the God who made you, and you are invited into that joy. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.